Welcome to today's podcast, the next instalment in our Worklife 2.0 series. My name is Caroline Stroud. I'm a partner in our People and Reward team, and I'm joined today by Olivia Radin and Ben Morgan from our Investigations and White Collar Crime Group, and Holly Inslee from our People and Reward team. Today, we will be discussing oversight challenges facing employers as a result of the changed working environment caused by COVID-19. We can see that employees are under increased pressure to make sales. Large rushed multi-million contracts for PPB are going through and employees feeling under financial strain are also worrying about losing their jobs. Now, all of that could possibly lead to bad behaviours. So a challenge will be for employers to have oversight of that. And in combination with all those factors, of course, uh, the immediate reaction to COVID-19 was for us to all work, if we can, at home. So remote working carries its own challenges. And it does look as though remote working may continue into the future and we may never go back to what we used to call normal five days in the office. So these aspects are undoubtedly going to bring challenges And Ben, I wondered if you might say a little bit about the oversight perspective and how it might change employers' risk profiles to have employees working from home in an environment where it's highly pressured uh, because of all the financial pressures that COVID-19 has brought to the world. Sure. Um, I think just at a really high level, it's, um, it's almost a state of mind thing. So I think there's a real risk at the moment of people justifying consciously or unconsciously that a different standard of behavior is somehow okay and as you were saying we've all been thrown really unexpectedly into a different environment and I think at the start that felt very temporary and it was almost like um, I remember when I was at school when the teacher didn't turn up to class there's just this sense that the rules are different you know and and there's always people in that environment who are going to behave differently than they would if the teacher was there And and it felt like that to start with for some people and I think the concern I've got is that there needs to be, now that this is becoming normal, a re-emphasis of the uh, rigour, the discipline that should apply in a normal environment. So we've got used to not wearing the same clothes that we'd wear at work, not having the sort of bookending of the daily commute and that sort of thing. But somehow we need to bring into that environment that same feeling of not compliance for the sake of it, but just the professional discipline that would come with our work if we were in whatever used to be normal for us. And what do you think are the biggest compliance risks uh, arising in this new working environment? Well, I think it's the flip side to the conduct. So if if people do feel that they can behave differently, if I'm in a compliance function, my concern is what kind of oversight have I really got at the moment of that? So firstly, my own environment, you know, I'm, I'm having to work on a laptop. I'm not seeing these people regularly. I don't have a feel for whether they're behaving normally. And I think there's a real sort of difficulty for that but also what about the monitoring the investigative techniques that you would usually use when you're conducting your compliance duties so can you properly supervise people you know there's so much different technology being used at the moment do we know how people are communicating is there a way of gathering checking that what about the physical side of it so if you were really worried about a particularly difficult conduct situation you'd probably gather physical items wouldn't you and you'd go and route around an office can't really do that at the moment or certainly in some jurisdictions we can't so I think there's a a real practical side to that and the last part of that which again features in most of the more difficult compliance investigation scenarios is the interview what is it that you can do 
that makes an interview as effective as it can be when there are very different circumstances and I'm sure others have views on their experience of that and mine has mine has definitely evolved during the Covid period so I began uh, with a really difficult suite of interviews for some executives and it was really quite hard I think to read them to push them as hard as they needed to be pushed over this media and I think I'm getting used to that myself but um, you know that is something that I think we're all going to find we have to adapt to. That's really interesting. That's the compliance risks. Um, Olivia, did you want to add anything on that compliance side? Thanks, Caroline. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of how does everyone being remote affect the risk companies are worried about? And I think there are some risks we can identify now that will be affected by remote working. And one of those might be, for example, onboarding of vendors, onboarding of new employees. You know, do you get the same information if you're not meeting them in person or you're not able to do a site visit? So there are some risks now that we can identify that we think, OK, what's reasonable to do when we're un- unable to go visit them? And I think that might morph into what's reasonable to do when you're balancing the, the efficiency of doing an in-person visit, you know, taking into account the learnings from this period. So there are, you know, existing procedures that are getting tweaked that may remain different going forward. And the question will be assessing that risk, considering what's reasonable, considering what substitutes you can put in place to address risk. I think that's one category of risks. And then there's a second category of, you know, what are the new risks that we're not even thinking about because they're going to be specific to this new way of working Are we more worried about people misusing company systems or sharing information with family members in a careless way or other permutations that I'm sure are out there that we we just aren't thinking about yet because they haven't manifested? So I think what will be really important for companies is to stay alive to the fact that risks are changing and controls are changing and to conduct ongoing assessments of those risks and to really pay attention to sources of information like their whistleblower programs so they can get whatever feedback there is about the concerns that people have. Um, And so really, it's a bit of a process point about being alive to changes in risks and taking that information on board. And Holly, do you think hearing all of that, it's reflected on the people side that people risk is changing because of the environment? I think it's absolutely reflected on the people side. I think it it fits very neatly with, with what Olivia's been describing. And it's about how risk manifests itself, I think. So fundamentally, I think you're dealing with the same categories of people risk that you probably were before. So misuse of confidential information or inappropriate behaviour or dishonesty, poor management of your teams. But there are now differences, I think, in how that will play out. So to give an obvious example, if people are not physically in the office together, then in all likelihood, you're not going to be getting allegations of kind of physical assault, for example, by one employee on another. But you can get acts of harassment and bullying being committed via email. And in fact, given the pressured environment that we're working under now, actually, maybe it's more likely that you'll see complaints about that type of behaviour. 
And I think that sort of leads on to a point about opportunity. So perhaps one of the differences now is in the greater opportunity for some particular types of misconduct to take place. So if you think about, you know, mobile phones being banned on the trading floor, well, it's very different when people are at home. It's much easier to record meetings or calls that are taking place, to take screenshots of things on your screen in a way that you wouldn't dare to do if you had somebody looking over your shoulder in the office. And I think people also just feeling like they might need to take shortcuts from an IT perspective because, you know, they can't print something um, when they're on the the work system. So they think, I'll just quickly flick that email onto my personal email address and, and print it via that route. So the opportunities for misconduct, I think, are possibly slightly greater now. And that also, I think, shapes how you need to then go about policing it in terms of ideally preventing it in the first place or if not, at least spotting it quickly when it happens. And Olivia, do you think that uh, employers' oversight and compliance arrangements will have to fundamentally change to pick up the kind of people risk that Holly's talking about and the compliance risks that you and Ben have described? It's an interesting question, Caroline. I think the important thing is that companies remain in contact with their employees and their people and are continuing to message compliance related guidance so that people know what the standard is. And, you know, you and I have talked about culture many times. How do you build a culture that has to continue even when people aren't building that culture through interacting in person? So I don't know if the monitoring will have to change. I think it probably will over time as more and more communication is electronic. There may be standards that evolve around, you know, how much monitoring do you need to do of people's electronic communications? And as we've seen through the work we've all done, you know, very much of that depends on what's reasonable to do given your own risks and what's reasonable against the standard of the industry. So if everybody starts monitoring electronic communications, for example, there's more pressure to do that. And I, I just wanted to pick up also on something that both Ben and Holly alluded to, which is people using their personal devices for work more because they're at home. And this is an issue that you know Ben and I often see in the investigations work we do. It's already an issue. What is an employer's duty to get data off an individual's personal device? And that can raise really thorny issues of consent and data privacy, um, depending on the jurisdiction and the employment agreement. And I think now that people are working remotely, you're going to see potentially evolving standards around what do employers have to do to get at information that relates to work, but that's on personal devices, including cell phones. Um, And I think that might be something that evolves. You know, here we've seen the DOJ really focused on that issue for a number of years, but it's always been a minority of the fraction of the communications because everybody was in the workplace, was printing to their computers. But I think if we see a, a shift in that, we may see more pressure on companies to grab those personal devices. And I think really difficult practical points as well, aren't there? If you need to seize devices for the purposes of your investigation, it's a very different thing. You can't just march around to somebody's desk and immediately seize their laptop and their mobile phone. So what are you going to do? Are you going to send someone round in a taxi to their house ready to you know, pop their phone in an envelope and take it away? Or are they going to have a crucial few minutes when they can wipe the device and actually you you lose control over information that you might previously have been able to get your hands on more easily in, a, in an office-based environment? Definitely been worried about that from, a, from an integrity of investigation point of view. There's an element now of self-selection in the data set that's available to an investigator or a compliance professional, which 
is not usually present. There's always some of that, but I definitely agree that that has become um, a much broader risk. So what, we need new policies on personal devices. Bring your own device to work doesn't really work when everybody's at home in any event. What, what other sorts of policies or practices do you think that employers in this world should really concentrate on to, to improve and have an effective oversight? A couple of thoughts I had were just spitballing. You know, one is on how do people make representations to customers, to stakeholders, but also to government authorities? Because I think with every application to the government or submission, you fill out an affidavit, you represent that what you're saying is true and accurate. And I would bet a lot of people are, you know, taking advantage of COVID-related deferrals and taxes and other forms of state aid where they're representing that it's essential to do this for the health of their business where they've been impacted by COVID. And that, I'm sure, is the case for many people. But we've also seen in the past in other contexts uh, where government certifications are required that when those get looked at in hindsight with public opinion shifting, um, you can really get scrutinized for the representations you make to the government, even if they seem perfectly natural at the time. So I would think one new type of risk you might need a policy to address is how do you make representations to the government? And I think you want to think about representations more broadly as well, Olivia, wouldn't you, just to the market, say, in the same way, you know, we have businesses fighting for their lives right now, and, and rightly say, but the difficulty is is the extent to which one represents accurately, for example, your financial strength and that kind of thing. And you've got to do everything you can to stay alive. There'll be some people who misjudge that, I think, at the moment. And there's every likelihood that um, after the event, the light will be shone on those that were on the wrong side of that line. So Ben, when it comes to making a risk assessment, so assessing your risk now, how how can you do that where the world is changing so quickly? Is there a way that companies can assess and spot where the risk really is and then be very targeted as to how they're going to have some oversight of that risk? The danger is that there is so much uncertainty. This is, you know, just like nothing we've ever seen before, that it's very hard to know where to start. So when I was thinking about this, I thought, start from the basics, look at your current risk assessment. Those risks haven't probably gone away by what's happened. So start there, re-familiarise oneself with what mattered then, because it probably still matters now. And then do two things. One, look at how those things could have changed. We've spoken already today about data privacy data control. I think that's an area that is through through use of technology, people working in unusual environments. That's something, just to take one example, where you've got to ask the question, is what we used to do to protect that risk still suitable? And then the second thing, having sort of grounded yourself, I think, in the risks that you know matter to your business is what's new as well. And that still is quite um, an unclear environment of things. So to approach that, I would think, well, how do I prioritise it? And, And it's, I think, impact on business as usual which is an area that would cause me, I think, to prioritise one thing over another. That's going to be different things for different businesses. But right at the beginning, uh, Caroline, you spoke about workforce downsizing. I think that's, you know, sadly, very much uh, a feature of the environment at the moment. And that can have business as usual risks. So it's something I would be looking at in my risk assessment now. So do we, by making these changes, are we still able to deliver through the sort of institutional knowledge that we've lost our contractual commitment to do certain work? And if we think about expectations of regulators, if you're in that sector, or just enforcement agencies generally, 
are we cutting the kinds of functions that provide necessary control so that after the event that's really damaged and we we look bad as a result of it so it's just sort of one example so i say there's gonna be lots of different things that are priorities for businesses but i would try to just have a little bit of a method to it because otherwise it could all feel a bit out of control but of course a risk assessment is a top-down exercise so it's the employer looking at where the risks might be in fact one of the most powerful ways to find out about issues or to spot risks is through people raising those in the workplace and Holly I wondered what you thought about how whistleblowing policies might need to be adapted or in some way formulated to meet the fact that people are working remotely and may not feel as able to raise an issue with their line manager or you know at the coffee machine or or wherever they want to do so. It's not necessarily a case of needing to adjust the policies. It might be. I mean, if there's a practical point that needs to be addressed about how you actually go about raising a concern, then it might be that there needs to be some adjustment from that perspective. I think the bigger question is whether you need to do some sort of overall refresh of your whistleblowing arrangements, bringing them back up onto people's radars, encouraging everyone again to to have whistleblowing in mind, have in mind the importance of speaking up and possibly doing some reassurance from a retaliation perspective if there's any worry that people are concerned and don't want to raise concerns. And it's really interesting because I've seen quite a few references in the last few weeks to an expectation that whistleblowing will actually increase in this different working environment because, for example, employees will somehow feel emboldened by the distance between them and their line manager and less worried about retaliation. And I think it's probably a bit too early to tell, but my own view is that actually we might see the opposite trend and we might experience a reduction in people speaking up and you know optimistically that could be because there's less misconduct but if you assume that's not the reason then possibilities could be that actually it's just harder to spot misconduct in this different working environment you know that point about physical proximity sometimes playing a big part in in the role of somebody who has compliance um, as their responsibility if it's harder to spot it then that goes back to the, the kind of oversight points we've been talking about But if it's an attitude problem, then that does go to your whistleblowing approaches and the communication of the importance of speaking up and the reassurance that you can give to people. You need to understand why they might be more reluctant to speak up. So is it because of that workforce downsizing issue we've been talking about? Is everyone feeling a bit concerned about their jobs and the last thing they want to do is raise their head above the parapet and and start raising concerns? Or is it, you know, to the culture point that that Olivia mentioned earlier, is it something to do with their engagement in the sort of corporate culture and generally a feeling now that, you know, they're just a bit less bought into the idea of it being important to raise concerns? So I think each organisation sort of needs to understand where it's at and what its own whistleblowing data is showing, but then use that to figure out, well, how do I need to refresh things or revise my communications around whistleblowing to to get myself to where I'd like to be in terms of people feeling willing and able to raise issues. And how, how do you think employers would do that in a sort of environment where people are working remotely? Would it be some form of employee survey or how would you find out whether people feel comfortable to speak up? I think for me that's a sort of 
part two, with part one being look at your whistleblowing data. So see what your hotline data is showing you. Have you had a reduction in reports? Is that in a particular area or is it across the board? Have you actually had a spike in reports in a particular area? And then I think you start digging from there. So you figure out where the change, positive or negative, has happened. Um, and then I think you can be a bit more targeted in the questions or the people of whom you ask the questions. And in terms of understanding sentiment and why it might be that people feel less able to speak up, I, I think you're right that a survey is one way to do that. We know that a lot of organisations build it into their engagement survey anyway. They have a section on whistleblowing because it's such an important issue. And, and that's obviously an option if the timing works or if you need to do something more urgently than a sort of, you know, one-off pulse survey of, say, a selection of employees to start trying to get a feel for why it might be that, that this, this trend is happening. So, so if we move on from what employers do, what about the regulatory environment? Do you think that because of this crisis, the regulators might be more lenient on employers and companies during that period of real crisis in February, March, April? Or do you think they will exert the same expectations of standards of behavior so that's the first question and then the second one would be going forward in the future are they going to change the way that they regulate and the standard that they apply because people are working in such different manners regulators being more lenient isn't generally a sentence that uh, you hear a lot and my own experience has certainly not been during this process any sign that there would be a more forgiving approach to conduct issues i think to the difficulty that, frankly, they and we have engaging with each other at the moment, yes, there is a real humanity to that. The public sector has evolved, perhaps understandably, slightly more slowly, I would say, than the pub private sector, just from a financial point of view. But no, if you focus on conduct, if anything, there's, I would think, going to be now an intensity around holding people to account that is akin to that which followed the banking crisis. So we've got a world at the moment in which a lot of public money is being ploughed into keeping businesses alive. And that is going to come at a cost at some point when we look back. I don't know if it's raised taxes or what, I'm not an economist. But at some point that, that pressure is going to be felt and the price will be paid. And when it emerges, as I'm sure will be the case, that there has been some misconduct during this period, my sense is that the regulators, the enforcement agencies, and, and indeed just public sentiment generally, if anything would be a little more harsh looking back on this time, then, then it would be um, forgiving. I don't know whether that's also a transatlantic view, Olivia. No, I agree with that. I think the danger is right now it feels like everything is on hold. And so right now it feels like DOJ and other regulators are not focusing on corporate conduct the way they have traditionally, but are more focused on COVID-related fraud scams, for example, um, which is not something that necessarily affects major Fortune 500 companies to the same extent as, say, post the financial crisis, the types of conduct that were being reviewed. I think that shifts as public opinion shifts. And as we come out of the crisis, I think that sense of things being on hold will be forgotten to a large extent. And the conduct that's occurring now under the current environment, which is that everything is um, on pause, will be judged based on the standard we're living under in two, three years. And I think that's pretty dangerous because when you look at things in hindsight, inevitably standards around risk and conduct evolve and you get a situation where you're defending what's happening in 2020 under the standards of 2021 or 2022. And so I think 
sophisticated clients are cognizant of that and aware of it and preparing for it. But that's really a lot of what we're talking about right now is how do you mitigate risk and avoid misconduct and how do you put in place the policies and procedures that will stand up over time. And I think the companies of that scale will be judged in the same way as, as the ones that have availed themselves of furloughed uh, money, have, have you know perhaps fallen into more difficult relationships with government schemes and that sort of thing. I think in time, people won't distinguish in, in the way that we, we can all clearly do now between those different corporates. And that it will be, you are a corporate, you are part of the beneficiary of that difficulty and I today as a citizen am now feeling the pain for it and I think that's going to be what the sentiment polarises as probably unfairly and as Olivia says hindsight often does that in an enforcement environment. I think that's a great point Ben because public opinion plays into enforcement priorities and if there's a general sense that the populace as a whole is bearing the brunt in rich corporations that drives a desire for more enforcement activity. So I think that is something to watch out for. So um, to finish up, just one question, which I thought each of you maybe could take. So uh, maybe go to Holly first. If you were an in-house legal chief or a compliance chief, what's the one thing that you, from the people and reward perspective, would want them to concentrate on when thinking about how to manage risk in the new world? I'd go back, I think, to to the point we were discussing a few minutes ago. I would start with the whistleblowing data. It will give you some good, concrete information on what is going on. So has there been an increase or a reduction in reports? Am I seeing things in a different area of the business? Am I seeing different types of concern being raised to the usual types of concern that, that this business experiences? And I think you build from there. You take that really useful, hopefully, concrete information and you figure out what that means in terms of where you next need to turn your attention. And Ben, what about you? Thoughts on that? I'm looking two, three years down the line, or maybe not quite as long as that, when things have gone wrong and there are going to be some businesses that are under the pump from an enforcement point of view. And I don't think any compliance professional can stop misconduct happening today humanly. They can't be the person that goes and does it. What they can do is prepare for how best you can appear and how best you can uh, be judged after the event. So I would say, make sure your board has compliance on its agenda still. There's so many things they're worried about, we get that, this isn't the central item, but make sure it's there and make sure that there's, you're not an outlier. So after the event, it's understood that this was still a serious issue. And if misconduct's taken place, it wasn't due to a lack of control and an abdication of responsibility. It was because these things happen and they happen in COVID and they happen in normal times, but not that there was a gap created now which somebody exploited and the last word from olivia i agree with everything that has been said um so just to add to that i think if i were a chief compliance officer what i would be thinking about is are my policies and procedures up to snuff am i missing something in the current moment or something that will play out down the line and have i been communicating that to people so that I'm not, you know, the company's not open to the risk that we had good paper policies, but we haven't trained people. So I would be thinking about kind of what am I missing? What should I be adapting? Should I be making communications about certain risks? And I think that's not to say that people have to redo their risk assessments overnight. That's a big process and is already ongoing at most companies. It's really, I think this is the point Ben made, dust off the last risk assessment and just think about 
whether there are any immediate changes that you think need to be made and then document the process of looking at it so that you can show that you went through the process of having some kind of interim analysis of risks. Well, thank you all for such an interesting discussion. If listeners are interested in Work Life 2.0, please go to the Freshfields website where the Work Life 2.0 page is situated.